When the props of society are taken away, how do people behave? When the props of society are taken away. Langdon Gilkey was a young American teacher at... I'm going to apologize to Chinese friends. I'm going to apologize for the pronunciation. Okay? He was a young American teacher at Yenching University near Peking, China, in the Second World War. In 1943, the Japanese military rounded up all the foreigners and they put them into an internment camp where many of them were kept for two and a half years. And more people were joined into the camp over that time until in the end more than 2,000 people were herded together into this small camp. And somehow they had to survive together. And after the war, Gilkey wrote a book called Shantong Compound, a memoir based on his journal and diary at the time. Now, the prisoners represented a cross-section of humanity. There were businessmen, professors, missionaries, and merchants. There were lawyers, doctors, junkies, prostitutes. There were old people, young people, and little children. There were the fat and the thin, the healthy and the sick. Everyone was there. And the camp was a kind of living laboratory. It was a microcosm of human society. And it actually demonstrated what human beings are really like under pressure. And that's my title today, Under Pressure. Gilkey went into the camp with a very positive and optimistic view about human nature. He believed that humans were innately good and reasonable and if they could see reason and see sense, that they would, of course, choose the best for other people. And you know what? His experiences in the camp over that two and a half years completely changed his mind about humanity. Let me just give two examples. Space and stuff. Space and stuff. Now, the camp was small, and more and more people were shipped in as the months went by. And as these new people came in, the conditions got more and more crowded. There just wasn't enough room for everyone. And Gilkey was part of a committee who were responsible for housing. The Japanese military had given them certain powers. So they went around the camp trying to persuade people to, to move out of their accommodation to make room for others. In one occasion, there were two dorms of men. One small dorm had 11 men, and another small dorm, right opposite, same size, had nine men. So Gilkey and his colleagues went to the, the dorm of, of uh, nine men and said, we'd like to transfer somebody in, just to make it fair, so there's ten in each room. And the men talked about it, got very defensive and angry, and said, no way. We're really sorry about those guys, but you know what? Life's tough, and we're not having anyone extra in this place. On another occasion, there were some single people living in a, quite a spacious room, and a family was brought to the camp with young children. And it was the ideal place for them. So Gilkey and his colleagues went and asked these people. And they said, um, I'm really sorry about the family, but you know, this is our home. We're not moving. And it really took the shine off his view of human nature. The second thing that happened that really shook him was stuff. Now, as time went by, rations got more and more scarce in the camp. And people were losing weight. Gilkey started out as a 170-pound man. And he's, he lost and nearly a third of his body weight over time. So you can imagine the creeping sense of starvation. Then, a few months in, some Red Cross parcels arrived from the, U the American Red Cross. And the parcels were three feet wide and one foot deep and 18 inches high, and they were full of stuff like sugar, chocolate, 
cigarettes and treats and cookies and had some nice warm clothes in them. And these packs were like, they were like gold coming into the camp. And they were from the American Red Cross. So the American contingent claimed their parcels. And that time, they were very generous. They shared their stuff with everyone in the camp. Now, that was wonderful. But a year later, when everyone was really starving and really up against it, and one day a load more parcels came in, enough for everyone in the camp to have one each, the Americans again said, sorry, but these are our parcels. They were sent from America for us, and we should have seven parcels each. And it... it, it through the whole camp to confusion and bitterness and violence and they had to protest the authorities because people, when they were down to their, to their last rations, when they were really down on their luck, were selfish, clumped together. They weren't really interested in other people's well-being. He went into the camp with a positive, optimistic view of human nature, but his experiences changed him forever. And he came to believe in a biblical idea that is sometimes called Original sin. Original sin. This is what it means. Human beings are basically warped. Fundamentally warped. We want to do what's good, but we're not able to choose it. And Gilkey wrote these words. What the doctrine of sin has said about man's present state seemed to fit the facts as I found them. In the camp... Both good people and bad people found it incredibly difficult to will the good. That is, to be objective in a situation of tension and to be generous and fair to their neighbours. Although we were quite free to will whatever we wanted to do, we were not free to choose to love others because the will did not really want to. We were literally bound in our own sin. He said he knew that that was what Christians believed, but now his experience seemed to back it up. Now, you know what? This is what always happens when people are under real pressure. It wasn't that those people in that camp in the Second World War were particularly bad. It was human nature, and we all share it. So that includes you. But the staggering claim of the New Testament is that there is one community that will function differently in the world. There is one community that will function differently under pressure. Only one, and it's called the Church of Jesus Christ. Peter says, when you put these people in the furnace, they will come out shining, purer, because the dross has been burned away and all you've got left is the gold. Put them under pressure and they will actually shine. They will become splendid. Not necessarily perfect, not always what we should be, but at its best, when it's faithful to its calling, the church of Jesus is the only place on earth that loves under pressure. Now, how do you live under pressure? You may not have been herded into an internment camp, although mothers of young children sometimes feel like it. But your life is under pressure, isn't it? And I want to ask how you respond to pressure. Well, what kind of pressure are we talking about? Pressure at work. Pressure to do more, to achieve more. Maybe you feel more is being asked of you in your workplace than you can possibly deliver. Or you're studying and your studies seem overwhelming. You feel like you're about to snap. You feel fragile. That is real pressure. 
pressure of health. Some people here struggling with major health issues. Now that places a burden on your spirit, doesn't it? Everything feels tense. Maybe people are walking around you on eggshells. What does my future hold? Pressure at home. Maybe your marriage is a hard place. Or it's going through a bad patch. And you find that you're, all, you're arguing with each other all the time. Or you're looking after children. And you're drained. And you're juggling family and other responsibilities. You haven't had a full night of sleep for weeks. Pressure. Time pressure. You've got so much to do. You never get it all done. You can't see the end of it. And people just want more and more from you. You feel like you never have enough time for yourself. Money pressures. Maybe you're in debt or you're, you're in poverty and it's hanging over you like a storm cloud. If you start thinking about it, you feel panic, helplessness and then despair. How am I going to get out of this hole? Now those are just a few pressures that life throws at us. And then there are some special pressures just for Christians. Being sexually pure in a permissive society. Being spiritually devoted to Jesus Christ when you're single and there's no life partner on the radar. Being marginalised because holiness looks weird. Now British people are still enjoying the last days of the legacy of a Christian country. But it is vanishing fast. One American pastor said, the image of evangelical Christians has moved from Ned Flanders to the Ku Klux Klan in five years. Ned Flanders is a sort of goofy, friendly, a bit silly neighbour in The Simpsons. He's a Christian. He's kind of harmless and silly. But the Ku Klux Klan are really threatening. That's where the image is going. And for some here, being persecuted because you follow Jesus could be a reality. For some of us. Now, most of us here, Westerners, won't really know deep persecution. But you know we've had a Muslim background woman come to faith at our church. And some Chinese people have come to faith here and they will face family, work and cultural pressures that we probably can't imagine. They will know what persecution feels like just because of Jesus. Now whatever pressures you face, you need to know how to live well. You need to know how to live well, how to live a good and attractive life that brings glory to Jesus. And Peter's letter is a powerful resource for Christians who are under pressure. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. In other words, they are in the furnace. Their circumstances are like being thrown into a furnace, a fiery ordeal. And in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So there's the point of the letter, is to help us to stand fast. So, how can we live well under pressure? Back to our text, chapter 1, verse 22 to verse 2, verse 3. Now this, this passage here has got two instructions for how to live well under pressure and two motivations and I want to deal with them separately. The first instruction is in chapter 2, verse 1, and it is, get rid. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, 
hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Peter lists five sins. Why these sins? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Is it a kind of Mary Poppins thing? These are a few of my favorite sins. He just thought of them. Malice and envy, deceit, and hypocrisy. No, I'm not going to do it. Now, why does he pick these five? Why do you think? Let me run through this ugly list quickly and then come back to the question. Malice, a mean-spirited attitude, bearing ill will towards somebody, loathing. You can't stand them and you wish them ill. Deceit, taking advantage of somebody else through craftiness, cunning and underhanded methods to further your own agenda. Not just telling porky pies, or porcupines, as my kids call them, but manipulation, deceiving. Hypocrisy, creating a public impression that is actually different from what you really are. Putting on an outward show, projecting an image. What you are like on the outside is different from who you are on the inside. That's hypocrisy. Envy, also known as jealousy, the green-eyed monster. Every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies a little. You can't be happy with your lot because you're looking over your shoulder at Felicity and you want Felicity's life. Now, she's not called Felicity, by the way. She's not leading on that. I'm not talking about a real Felicity. Just chose the name, which also means intensely happy. Slander. This is the act of speaking ill of another person. Defamation. Detraction, snide comments, barbed words, harsh criticism, blotting and marring someone's reputation with some well-chosen words. These are a few of my favourite sins. No, why do you think Peter's chosen these five? Because they're all sins of relationship. They're all sins of relationship. They all have a direct social dimension. They're directed at other people. And they're sins that destroy relationships. And they destroy community. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander. And you know what? These are the sins that come out of our hearts when we're under pressure. When we're under pressure, these are the things that come up. The seeds of them are in every human heart. And the heart is like a garden. And when the conditions are right, those weeds come up again. You could never completely get rid of them, but you can learn how to deal with them. Now, what about you? Let's be honest with each other. What are you like when you've not had enough sleep? What are you like when your security is threatened? Financial security or relationship security? What are you like when your time is really pressured? What are you like when someone else gets a promotion or a boyfriend? What are you like when you miss a meal These are the sins that come out. And these are the community destroyers. Do these weeds ever grow in marriages? Yes. Do they ever grow in streets? Yes. Do they ever grow in workplaces, in families? Now what are Christians, people who follow Jesus Christ, to do? He says here, get rid, rid yourselves of 
malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Literally, this word, get rid yourselves, sometimes used of taking off clothing. Taking it off. Taking it, putting it aside. It's a bit like he's saying, you know that attitude of malice towards that other person? You're wearing it. It's on you like a jacket. It's like a coat. You've got to take it off and walk away. There's my malice. It's gone. And don't go back and put it on again. Because those clothes don't suit you anymore. They're part of your old way of life. That dirty old malice coat that you had. Take it off. Don't put it back on. Now, that's the first instruction we have to live these great lives of glorious goodness and attractive lives in, in, under pressure. I mean, in some ways, that first instruction is quite negative, isn't it? It's just don't do it, get rid, take off. But there is a positive behavior in the passage, and that's the other instruction we need to hear if we are to live gloriously under pressure, and it is this, love relentlessly. Chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Now, our translation here says love one another deeply, but I'm going to venture that on this occasion it's probably not the best translation option. Because if you think about loving someone deeply, what kind of things come to mind? I suspect it's a sort of emotional, passionate, maybe romantic type love, you know, something you don't have control over, you just deeply love them. But you know what, that's not a Bible idea of love. Biblical love isn't driven by our feelings, but by our choices. We choose to love people. We make a choice. And love is not primarily about feelings, but about actions. Love is behaving in a righteous way. That means a fair way, a generous way, a kind way. You act as though you love someone, and you know what? Often your feelings will follow later. So a better translation, I think, of this word would be constantly, unremittingly, or relentlessly. He's saying, don't give up loving. Never stop. Here it is again. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, never stop loving. Love relentlessly from the heart. Now, again, what is this from the heart language? And I think here again our culture doesn't help us. Because if we talk about heart, we mean heart is the place of my emotions. So to love someone from the heart means to have a a powerful emotional attachment to them. Feelings you just can't control. Can't stop that feeling. So we think of head versus heart. And the head is your brain and your heart is your emotions. Do you know what? That is a million miles from the way the Bible thinks. The Bible talks about the heart as your center. Your motivational center. It's who you really are and the choices you make. So in the Bible, you think with your heart. In the Bible, you feel with your heart. And in the Bible, you choose with your heart. It's your center. It's who you are at the core. So Peter is saying, at the center of who you are, make a choice to love other people. Make a choice and don't flake out and give up when things get tough. Love relentlessly. Now, why would Peter have to say that to a church? Do you think? 
Obviously because there are people you find hard to love. There are people who annoy you. There are people who offend you. There are people who wind you up, upset you, hurt you. There are people who disappoint you. Now, I want you to close your eyes for a moment, please. I'm not going to creep up on anyone, don't worry. <laughs> Martin doesn't believe me, he's still got his eyes open. <laughs> he's known me too long. I want you to close your eyes for a moment and picture someone in your life who you find it hard to love. Someone who maybe has offended you, upset you, hurt you, disappointed you. Don't all think of me. Okay, you can open your eyes. Now be honest. Are you engaging in these relationship sins towards that person? Malice. A settled feeling of ill will. Deceit. The way you, you relate to them. Hypocrisy. You're pretending something you're not. Envy. Slander. Are you avoiding someone at the moment? Is there somebody that you can't actually make eye contact with? Uh, you can't even speak to them. You, you find it hard to be in the same room. Are you dealing hypocritically with someone? Is your face and your smile telling a different story to what's going on inside? Is there someone who you actually speak ill of? Maybe not to their face, but your friends know, and they're probably in on it. Is there someone you bear malice toward? You have a settled feeling of ill will towards them, and every time you look at them, you're finding fault. They actually can't do anything right. You're looking for more reasons to hate them. Now listen, that is the person you are called to love. That is the person. You're not called to love your friends. You already do. That's why they're your friends. You have to love that other person. Now just think of the community cohesion that would result if we did these simple things. Just think of the difference it would make in your workplace, your street, your family and your marriage if we got rid and loved relentlessly. Just think of the powerful witness that it would make if non-believing people came into our church community and it was characterised by these things. Now some of you guys here are going to launch a new church in July this year called City Church Manchester. What do you want to be known for? When you start, what do you want to be famous for? Will you strive for your new church to be characterized by these things? That you get rid of malice, deceit, envy, slander, and hypocrisy, and you love relentlessly. Wouldn't that be a good thing to be famous for? Grace Church, isn't this what we want to be known for? So that our words of grace are actually supported by our lives of love and holiness. You know, the early Christians were. In response to some criticisms about the Christians, one of the early church fathers, as they're known, a man called Tertullian, wrote these words. It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. See how they love one another. That's what the, the, even their persecutors in the Roman Empire couldn't get over it. How these Christians love each other. And it was practical care. Now, hands up, who would like to live in a community of love? Hands up, who would like to live in a community free from malice, deceit, 
hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Of course, everyone puts their hand up to that. The secular humanist puts their hand up. The new age hippie puts his hand up. The atheist puts his hand up. I don't think anybody wants to live in a, in a, in a place that's full of hatred and malice and where they're always being lied to. But how are we going to do it? Where do you get the resources to live like this? How is Peter going to motivate his early readers in the fiery trial to lives of shining splendor? Now, it's very interesting because he doesn't do it by nagging or scolding or threatening. Peter gives two motivations to live like this. First one, he says, is you've been born again. Verse 22. No, that's wrong. It should be verse 23. But let me ask you, look at your Bible for a moment. If you had written verse 23, what would you have written? That, uh, let me read verse 22, and then you see how you would have written the next verse. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for, what would you say? Love one another deeply from your heart, because, and I would have said, because Jesus loved you like that, and you should do the same. Right? Or, it's your duty. You're a Christian, for goodness sake. Or, God says so, so just get on with it. But Peter gives a very different reason. He says, love each other deeply from the heart because you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Now, what is he doing here? He's drawing a contrast between the natural world, creation, uh, created world, and the spiritual. And he's saying, by nature, we're perishable. We're like grass and wildflowers. We grow up, we look good for a while, and at some point, around about the age of 21, we start to go downhill. We quickly decline. We wither and die. And it is shocking how quickly the decline sets in. After the age of 40. <laughs> but he says in the spiritual world, things operate totally differently. He says the word of God endures forever. It never perishes or decays or goes rusty. God's word is his truth. It expresses his intentions they can never change. And if you've been born again by that word, you've now been brought into a new way of life. That's why he uses the image of being born again. It's a sweeping way to talk about everything that's new now. Here's his point. Those relationship sins, malice, envy, etc., etc., they're all part of the old corrupt world order that is passing away. The new world that God is bringing in is a world of love. Because of God himself, that's his character. He is described as love. God is love. He's full of love. He, he's, God is essentially self-giving. He's essentially self-sacrificing. He's always other-focused. And the character of God is seen most clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where arms spread wide, bleeding to death, struggling for breath, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. 
It's the character of God taking the anger and, and just punishment for our sins on himself so that we could have a clean slate. Everything Jesus does, he does for us. So if you've been born again, got new life, and that's your God, then of course you will love relentlessly. How could you live otherwise? Peter's point is this. Christian friend, you need to reflect on the reality of who you are now. And when you realize who you are, you'll find the resources to love relentlessly because you've been born again to a new way of life. And your father is God, who is a God of love. So bear the family likeness. Now, the second, and this is my final point here, is closely related, is that you have tasted good. And I don't mean you have tasted good, but you have tasted that the Lord is good. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says... Well, let's back up a bit. Chapter 2, verse 1. Rid yourselves of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And again, I think I might have written this a bit differently. I might have said, get rid of these sins because they're so horrible and they destroy community. Peter says, get rid of them. You've tasted that the Lord is good. And here he's actually quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting a psalm that was written by a guy under pressure. So if you'd like to turn with me to Psalm 34, we'll read it and we'll finish in a few minutes. But let me say uh, to those of you who have a church Bible, we're on page 561. Page 561. Psalm 34. A poem by a man under pressure. I will ex- well, look at the little uh, note there underneath the heading of Psalm 34. Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. He was in such a tight spot, he had to pretend to be mad to escape with his life. And then he wrote this. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. And he saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. Taste and see. That the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace And pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out. And the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the broken hearted. And saved those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles. But the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. 
The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. When I was 18 years old, a woman broke my heart. She was blonde, tall, beautiful, and Dutch. We'd been dating for more than a year. I don't know what I thought was going to happen when her family moved back to the Netherlands, but she dumped me. And I'd never experienced, before or since, heartache like it. I just felt absolutely broken. And I remember weeping to my, my dad, and he, as a poor parent trying to comfort me and feeling even worse himself, gave me a small Bible and said, you need to go for a walk and read Psalm 34. So I took the little Bible and went off to some fields near an industrial estate near our house. And I was in the fields and it was night and I opened it. And by the street lights next to the fields, I read these words, Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And the final verse of that poem, in that version that I had, said the one who takes refuge in him will never be desolate. And somehow that word, desolate, just became radioactive to me. Because that's what I was feeling. And I realized then I'd been tasting and seeing that this girlfriend was good. And I'd kind of based everything around her. But now I needed to get to the one who really was good. The Lord. So let me ask, have you done that? Does any of this resonate with your life experience? Any of what we just read from that psalm? Where are you in this journey of faith? If faith was a game of football, where would you be? Sorry, it's a blokey analogy. But we all understand the concept of football. If faith was a game of football, where would you be? Are you on the pitch playing in the middle of it? Are you walking off the pitch to the changing rooms, getting out of it? Are you standing on the sidelines, looking in, not sure if you want to play or not? Are you even in the stand? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? There's only one real balm for the broken heart. There's only one real calm for the troubled mind. There's only one person who can satisfy the Lord, satisfy the soul. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you tasted that he is good? Jesus once met a woman who'd had five husbands and was currently living with a man who she wasn't married to. A woman who had gone through one relationship after another, being disappointed, broken-hearted. And he sat down and he said, I can give you water, but when you drink it, you'll never thirst again. Jesus was described as one who wouldn't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering candle wick. So gentle is he. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? I'm not talking about mere head knowledge, but in your experience, have you tasted that the Lord God is sweet to you and good to you and he is, he is the one who looks after you? You've called out and he heard you and saved you out of your troubles. He delivers you from your fears and you look to him and your face is radiant, not covered with shame. Have you tasted that? Now that is the only way we will be equipped to live these kind of cultural, countercultural lives that Peter's talking about. Lives of relentless love toward other people. 
people who we don't even like. Lives of getting rid of these relationship sins. Only if we've tasted that the Lord is good. So, Peter says, crave pure spiritual milk. That is the grace of God in your life day by day. If you are living in a relationship with a gracious, kind God, bringing your life before him day by day and laying its burdens on him, if you are tasting his sweetness in the bitter place, and you can weather the storm. But if you lose connection with that gracious, kind God, because you're so busy and so intense and worried and anxious and bitter and angry, then you cut off the lifeline of grace and you won't be able to love. You turn inwards and you wither and wilt and shrink and die. So you must pursue God aggressively, all the more when life is under pressure. Right? The whole world will turn bitter and vicious under pressure, but the claim of the New Testament is there's one community that will function differently. One community that will function differently under pressure. When you burn them, they come out like gold. When you squeeze them, pure oil runs out. Only one, it's called the Church of Jesus Christ. That is our calling. Peter says, put these people in the furnace, they come out purer, the dross burned away. They will shine, they will be splendid. Not perfect, not what we should be, but at best, the only place on earth that lives and loves under pressure because we've been born again to a good father through an enduring message that will never fail because we've tasted that the Lord is good. Towards the end of his time in that prison camp, Langdon Gilkey saw some people who were living differently. There was one man in particular who he calls Eric Ridley. And now in the camp, you can imagine the group that was the most problem were the teenagers. They were climbing the walls. And so people were giving up on them. Couldn't be doing with these teenagers in the middle of this camp. But there's this one man who did more than anything else to solve the teenage problem. And Gilkey calls him Eric Ridley. It is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint. But he came as close to it as anyone I've ever known. Often in an evening of that year, when I would pass by the games room and peer in to see what they were doing, as often as not, I saw Eric Ridley bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some kind of square dance, absorbed, warm and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the minds and the imaginations of those penned-up youths. Eric's enthusiasm and charm carried the day with the whole effort. Shortly before the camp ended, he was stricken suddenly with a brain tumour and died the same day. The entire camp, especially the teenagers, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. There was a quality seemingly unique to the missionary group. Namely, naturally and without pretense to respond to a need which everyone else recognised but turned aside. Much of it went unnoticed, but our camp could scarcely have survived as well as it did without it. If there were any evidences of the grace of God in that camp, they were to be found there. Well, that man's real name was Eric Liddell. He was a Scottish Olympic athlete who'd gone to be a missionary in China and ended his days in that camp. A man who rid himself of malice, envy, hypocrisy, slander, and a man who followed Jesus and loved relentlessly 
to the end of his days. May God give us the grace and the favor to live like that. Yeah? Amen.